throw down the gauntlet, take up the challenge. A new age begins. Romance and adventure live. I was going to say, speaking of Sherilyn Finn, hey Andy, did I tell you what like the other movie I was considering for Back to School was? Um, I must not have. The, it's called Just One of the Guys. Have you? Oh, I've seen Just One of the Guys. You have? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is it like? <laughs> it's, uh, it used to be on Comedy Central all the time when, when I was growing up. Yeah. I um, told him if he picked that, I'd pick Soul Man. <laughs> we would have gotten canceled. I know. <laughs> canceled. <laughs> the gauntlet. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined here today, as always, with Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a topic for the week, and the other two hosts pick films in response to that topic. And it was my turn to pick the topic this week, and it was inspired by uh, a sense of excitement amongst uh, my fellow hosts here for the, the new Clint Eastwood picture that came out the weekend just before we've recorded this episode, and that is Cry Macho. So I asked the boys here to bring me films that are riffing on that title, the idea of Cry Macho. And I wanted to see some tender looks at machismo and macho men uh, getting the feels, case of the feels. And um, that's certainly what we had this week. So, um, Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the crying macho men that you brought to the table? Well, with the topic and, and considering, you know, Clint's film and everything, like... When you when you threw out the topic, of course, I, I think it's so easy. My brain just immediately went to like westerns. You know, I think they're 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 such a um, you know a destination for for that for that subject mm-hmm. matter for those kinds of feels, as you put it. So consciously, I, I I really struggled to try to to drift away from that a little bit, and was was you know racking my brain, and then it just clicked a light went on and uh it gave me an opportunity to bring a film to the table that we had previously discussed uh in brief when we did our episode where we watched land of the dead uh and george romero's film and i had mentioned to you what i think is perhaps his most underrated and underappreciated film certainly by the masses so I thought, you know, I'm looking for an opportunity to bring this to the to the podcast, and then it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect with the theme for this week. So we have our first, I should also say, returning champion of a director with George Romero's 1981 masterpiece, Night Riders. Night Riders, for those who haven't seen it, is 
a film that stars Ed Harris in his first starring role, as a matter of fact, as King William, a.k.a. Billy Davis. And King William, or Billy, as he's also known throughout the film, is the leader of a motorcycle troupe, a group of uh, motorcycle sort of riders and, and stunt people who also uh, reenact a, a sort of medieval life. Uh, it's basically like a, a Renaissance fair, but instead of riding horses, everyone's riding motorcycles. And uh, this group, King William's band of, of, of merry people, uh, live by a, a Arthurian code. They try to uphold the ideals of King Arthur's court as they travel the land and battle uh, for honor, for uh, respect, for a sense of purpose and, and meaning, and also for the crowd's entertainment. However, as we know, with the story of Camelot, not all utopic societies have it so easy. And they certainly don't have it very easy in King William's group uh, either, as uh, the perfect life, the, the escapism from the sort of humdrum modern world is challenged and, and besieged from all sides by corrupt cops, uh, a, a enterprising business person played by Martin Ferrero of Miami Vice fame. The legend. Uh, who's trying to sort of bring the group into a more commercial kind of existence. You know, they want uh, King King William's group to, to start playing bigger crowds and to become a lot more media savvy and and more capital minded in their in their pursuits. Uh, but of course King William is not acting. Like his 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 ideals are not part of the performance. He believes in what they're doing. He doesn't see it as a sort of goof or you know, act that they're putting on. So the group uh, begins to fall apart. Uh, Camelot starts to rot uh, as the various factions of, of King William's band start to splinter with some deciding they want to, to go with this business guy. They want to make more money. They, they want to, to stop living so hand-to-mouth. And uh, really, the film then is this sort of this struggle, this struggle for power, this struggle for uh, a sense of, of identity. You know, who are we? What do we stand for? And Ed Harris, as King William, is at the center of it all, trying to hold this group together, trying to get... Uh, the the those around him to to really see the beauty in what he stands for, but you know again as you said this is sort of about masculinity and machismo and and portraits of what that is and and how it can sometimes um, all sort of go wrong, and that's certainly what happens in this film with King William who increasingly becomes reckless and dangerous in his attempts to sort of 
show and demonstrate everyone like that that he is for real. Um, and we'll we'll get into much more. You know, uh, it's it's a long film. I mean, really, it's the longest <laughs> film that Romero ever made. Yeah. So we've got two <laughs> epic films to explore. And uh, yeah, I, I I'm so thrilled to bring this because I knew that neither of you had had seen this one. So I was very very excited for us to watch Night Riders. Yeah, but this is a classic example of the gauntlet forcing me to watch a film that I had been meaning to watch but had arbitrary reasons of avoiding, one of which was the runtime of this film, as you mentioned. So I will, if anything, I, I appreciate um, you putting it here so I could finally reckon with, with Night Riders. Marsh, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the, the tender and sensitive picture that you brought to the gauntlet this week? Well, when I think about Crying Macho, I think about the cinema of Nicholas Ray, one of my all-time favorite filmmakers and one whose filmography is full of uh, sensitive, troubled, and uh, problematic male figures uh, and who have issues with identity and masculinity and all that stuff. Of course, most famously in things like Rebel Without a Cause or On Dangerous Ground or, or what have you. But I was inspired by the Eastwood film, specifically that his character in the film is an ex-rodeo man. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to watch the Lusty Men from 1952. This film is sort of the end of Ray's run at RKO, where he had started, nurtured by Howard Hughes, of all people, uh, into a sort of solid career in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, and after this film, he became a sort of independent rogue, hopping around from studio to studio. But this film is a black and white, gray, moody, reflective, modern Western about rodeo guys. And specifically, it is about Jeff McLeod, as played by Robert Mitchum, who is uh, a legendary rodeo rider, a champion who is at the end of an 18-year career when the movie begins, as he's tossed from a bull uh, and sustains uh, some pretty bad injuries, which causes him to up and leave the rodeo game. And he goes home to his childhood home where uh, some other guy is just like living there now. And uh, he, of course, just sort of bums around and meets uh, this young couple who live in the area. The Merritts, Luis and Wes, played by Susan Hayward and Arthur Kennedy. And the Merritts are a sort of striving couple. Uh, he is an amateur uh, sort of rodeo rider who uh, has dreams of, you know, making it to the big time while he's, uh, you know, working at this farm. He's just like a ranch hand. Uh, and his wife and him, again, they, they have dreams and they want to own a home and have their own ranch. Uh, and they meet Jeff, and Wes is enamored with him. He is very into him because of uh, his past and just the cool, of course, that he exudes as uh, this man who's seen it all on the rodeo circuit. And so from there, the film is uh, essentially, yeah, the retired Jeff McLeod helping Wes become a 
rodeo champion. And we go from, you know, we see his first time out, and by the end of the movie, he's, you know, one of the best guys on the circuit. And we follow their journey from trailer park to trailer park, from southwestern town to southern town, as they, like the Knights of Night Riders, ply their trade by entertaining the locals. And... That's uh, that's the lusty man. And I do want to give a nod just as George Romero is the first returning champion director we've had on the podcast. One thing that I noticed is that we have a three time returning champion cinematographer, and that is Lee Garms, who shot Stormy Weather as well as Max Ophels is caught. Wow. And he, of course, shot the lusty man. Uh, so. Congrats to the returning champions. Yeah, a real seasoned career, that guy. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, it was it was certainly really wonderful to return to the Lusty Men. Um, I haven't seen a Nicholas Ray film for a couple of years, and I even felt like Robert Mitchum when he says, I was looking for something I thought I had lost. And that's how it felt returning to the cinema of Nicholas Ray. It's a it's a cinema that really affects you emotionally um, with it's such a singular vision of the world, right? The Nicholas Ray vision as Romero himself. So, And I, I must say, after watching both of these films together, I was a little intimidated for this week because it was such a perfect pairing to the point where, it, I mean, they're films that are so like rich, um, in their details and their depth, um, and they're all they're riffing on very similar things to the point where you could probably write a dissertation on both of these <laughs> films. Oh yeah, <laughs> side by side portrayals of entertainment communities. Yeah, not not a not a cursed pairing, a blessed pairing. This is this one fits very firmly in the co- category of the blessed pairing, without a doubt. They're both films that have a death drive, if you will, of um, mm-hmm. committing themselves to an ideal or trying to. develop their own icon status and at the same time calling it into question and that is so much of where the sensitivity and emotional turmoil comes from and in that sense too they're both films that relate to sort of the Eastwood project so it all fits very beautifully into this lovely package Um, so you both receive high marks for for this double feature well they are uh, as, as Rosenbaum referred to the lusty men as a modern dress western of course the same could be applied to Knight Riders, which is very much set in the 80s, uh, but is also, yes, in that sort of Western kind of category uh, with the community and all that stuff. And it's interesting to me, what struck me most about seeing these films together and why I think they're both very great films and, and powerful together is because what is at the root of both of these films? The conflict of money. Money, money, money. It's what it's all about. Money causes all the problems, so on and so forth, right? As well as, you know, yes, the sort of masculine death drive that's on display as well. But it's also related to money and and that sort of pursuit, right? They're inseparable. Yes. Both of these films are are really, uh, you know, intensely, like so much of the the conflict uh, revolves around that, around money, Uh, I think, uh, with sort of like different ends, I think, with with both of them, you know, in terms of like what that money is for, what it's meant for, you know. But I will say like, uh, yeah, especially in... Lusty men, something that really struck me, you know, when you talk about that idea of like money and and how important it is, 
how many numbers are bandied about in Lusty Men. Like numbers, 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 cash, cash, cash. What is this? What did we make? What are we getting? What you know? What did I get in this rodeo? Like, uh, their their bank books, like yeah. shots of the the checkbooks, and and people talking about telegrams with you know yeah amounts to per, buy a house you know like yeah. to the dollar. It, it really is this like this like paranoid capitalist nightmare that like is kind of like. Uh, unfolding uh, in the in the rodeo drama, right? In a way, the first real scene of the film after we get Mitchum, you know, falling off of the bull is very much so about money and about that that you know the differences in how everyone is perceiving funds and how it like affects their lives because you have Robert Mitchum returning to his childhood home that is now like a bit of a dump and when he meets the man who now owns it he even says like oh i you know i thought i was getting a really good deal here but it's clear that i didn't and then Mitchum kind of looks around and says oh it's exactly as i remember it you know he's got the sort of the neutral look at it but then when Wes and his wife arrive you know, it's their dream just to be able to afford that house. So already we've got like three different perspectives on the single location and what it means in terms of money for, for all of these people. You know, a loss or just like nothing or just a dream to be attained. It should also be pointed out that when Mitchum arrives to his like, you know, dilapidated childhood home, like uh, he he encounters the new owner of his house because he he crawls underneath it to to like this this like cubby hole he had as a kid and uh, he he fishes out like a flask and he tells the guy you know the the owner comes and like pulls a rifle on him pulls a Winchester on him's like what are you doing underneath my house you know and he like kind of crawls out and he shows him this flask and he's like you know I came here because you know when I was a kid I. I uh, squirreled away my money in this flask under here, you know, and he pulls it out and there's two nickels in it. <laughs> and he's like, when I was a kid, this was a lot of money. But it also strikes me that at that point, you know, when we're introduced to him at the beginning of the film, where now he's like, he's broke, out of the job, doesn't know what he's going to do. Damn, I also was like, he really was just going in there for them two nickels because he like, <laughs> yeah. that, that he needed those nickels. Crawling you know? on the dirt under a house for nickels, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like he is that busted at that moment, you know. Absolutely, and and it's you know he's a very interesting character, Jeff, right? Because he has a very blasé attitude about money that is in direct conflict, of course, with the merits whose whole lives revolve around it. And even the rodeo as a pursuit uh, for like a, a quick buck as it's sort of referenced like a, a get rich scheme, you know, on Wes's part, at least, of course, at first before the real soulful stuff kicks in, right? And the real manly stuff, right? All the stuff that Jeff's trying to forget about, right? The fact that he was this great champion champion who uh, lived that sort of lifestyle and I think lifestyle as well is like featured in both of these films as this this draw this appeal but also one that of course has setbacks right it's like wouldn't it be great if we just drove around and performed all the time like yes of course but at what cost <laughs> yeah exactly and both films ask those questions and introduce us to uh 
these rich communities of people who, again, are all of all different sort of perspectives on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very like quick in, uh, the lusty men. Like when you see that you see West Merritt, um, played by Arthur Kennedy. Uh, I was just so impressed with him, like immediately, like he has such a great screen presence and you see it, as you said, but that he becomes enamored very quickly with, with um, you know, Robert Mitchum's character, Jeff, uh, and, and particularly like when he hears, you know, Mitchum sort of talking about like his high watermark, like his best days. And he says, you know, well, you know, one day I made 25,000, you know, at this big championship he had. And you just see, you know, Wes's eyes light up like, damn, 25,000 in one day. Like, I got to get me some of that. But Wes's wife, who is sort of the perpetual kind of like, I mean, on the one hand, you could call her a wet blanket. On another hand, you could call her a, a, a pragmatist, yeah. I think, more yeah. of a realist. She goes, well, you made 25000 in one day. And, and then she says to him, like, now you don't have it, basically. Easy come, easy go, I suppose, right? But she is very quickly... Like extremely wary, extremely skeptical of of all this, because of course, you know, Mitchum's coming in. You know, he's kind of like this this like water diviner. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> I can show you the way, you know, and all this stuff. And she's kind of like, yeah, I mean, she sees right through it immediately. Yeah, but you know, Wes is completely magnetized to him, and I think that the heart of, you know, much of the film, and at least very much the first half of the film, is sort of this unspoken connection between the two of them, like what's drawing both of them together, because you have Wes that has this idealized image of what his future can be. You know, he's just completely ignoring the end point for Robert Mitchum, and instead he's seeing just opportunity. He's seeing where money can come in, He, in a way to prove himself. He's a man who thinks he has a lot of potential and he thinks that this is something that he can accomplish and he thinks that Robert Mitchum then is going to be you know the surrogate that like leads him through all of it and then at the same time Robert Mitchum himself feels completely spent with his line of work um, in terms of his own ability and he recognizes his lack of ability and he sees he can use Wes as a surrogate to then relive all of that and work through it and then kind of provide sagely advice and take 50 percent of his earnings well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the opportunities in that sense too of course that yeah. is quite a cut let me oh, say yeah <laughs> yeah because they enter into like yeah they enter into this deal where he shows him the ropes and they split the cash they're like partners right but we should say too ryan that the i i guess sort of according to the movie's logic at least that it's getting at is also that jeff robert mitchum does have a thing for louise Right. Uh, or maybe even Wes. Well, that too, <laughs> sure. It's a Nicholas Ray movie. There's right. bisexual looks everywhere mm -hmm. uh, and always. Everyone is lusty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can talk about what the title means as well. But <laughs> I do want to say, like, to your point, Andy, I think Arthur Kennedy is really great here. And I also think Susan Hayward is really great here. And I think it speaks 
as always, to Nicholas Ray's sort of mercurial direction of actors, which was mostly, you know, from what I've read, sort of like a lack of direction a lot of the t- a lot of the time. But he really does get this vulnerability from actors that you don't see in other films of the era. And I think like all of this trio that is like the movie, right? They are all very like nuanced sort of performances in that regard incredible performances really and and the supporting cast as well like there's there's just a really great ensemble here that we're quickly introduced to um as they're sort of swept up then uh into this kind of like rodeo circuit and we get uh introduced to i think one of the 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 best characters uh of the film uh, this guy booker or Book, as he's known, who's played by Arthur Honeycutt. And he's kind of like the the folksy, broken down, even more so than Mitchum, veteran of the rodeo circuit, who has a, a tall tale and a story, uh, you know, kind of a, a homespun anecdote for just about any situation. He's really kind of like the the philosopher, you know, the Southern fried philosopher of this like rodeo circuit who who kind of throughout the film ends up playing this sort of like Greek chorus, if you will. He's kind of like, you know, the, this like uh, Texan chorus that that's constantly commenting on the action and the events, but through like a fable or a legend of something yeah. that he encountered. And it's so hard not to get a, ahead of myself in this discussion because there's so many things that, you know, you've used this phrase before, like rhyme throughout the film that, you know, his character is almost kind of like Merlin in Knight Riders, yes. you yes. know, this, this kind of wise old figure that people turn to in these sort of dark moments, not for a, a, a straight kind of, you know, uh, guidance or leadership here, but a more like mythical kind of or mystical guidance of like how to handle, you know, this conflict or the situation. Where do we go from here? What do I do? And, you know, he's not going to say, go do this. He's going to say, well, let me tell you a tale and uh, see if this helps, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Like, sometimes it does help. Sometimes it doesn't help. Booker's got just about the most busted leg in the world. Nobody will ever beat it less than jump over one of them New York skyscrapers. <laughs> Last time Booker broke it, doctors wanted to cut it off. It's up in Denver. He got right off the operating table, got some crutches, and headed for New Mexico in our pickup truck. That night, a big blizzard come up and had to pull in one of them there motels. Had no sooner got in bed and my legs started hurting. Got to hurting pretty bad. Finally, got up and pushed my bed over to the window and opened it and stuck my leg out. Pretty soon, the leg froze up and the pain went away. Next morning, they got up and thought it out in front of a stove, drove on to Santa Fe, and won four firsts that day. <laughs> okay, best thing about the Lusty Men, for real, is that there is a crap game going at this rodeo 24 7. Oh my God. And in any group scene, there's some guys in the corner playing craps. And in fact, <laughs> during the rodeo, the rodeo riders themselves are playing craps and not watching the yeah. other riders yeah, because between runs, yeah. they're all just playing craps the whole movie. Yeah. And it's awesome. But again, it's, it's part of, yeah, that uh, problematic rodeo lifestyle where all what, even if you earn money doing this extremely dangerous thing, 
You're spending it at the bar. You're spending it in the crap game. You're loaning it to your broke friend who didn't win anything that day. And one thing that I found really interesting this watch was it sort of referred to kind of like more than once, I think, that Jeff has like loaned a lot of people money in the past mm-hmm. and it's never really dwelled upon, but it's just another little note to his character, like, and his blase attitude about money where he would tell you, yeah, well, sure. I don't have it now, but it was well spent. I gave it to a friend or I gave it to the bartender as he says it towards the end of the film. Right. Yeah. You tried. What did you win? I made a thousand bartenders, which in my time. I've thrown away the down payment for a dozen spreads of my own over a crap table. I had 18 great years all by myself. But right, I mean, like the like the crap game that's always going on, or the 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 all night drinking sessions. You know, <laughs> it's it's again this as you know Susan Hayward's character like quickly kind of realizes it's just yeah this this sort of like toxic machismo that's running 24 fucking 7 yeah. as you said in one form or another and it it goes very quickly to something that that Mitchum says where he's kind of even trying to warn her a little bit because she is she is hesitant she is unsure she doesn't think it's like a wise lifelong kind of venture and Mitchum isn't like arguing with her he's kind of like yeah you're right you know but he says well some things you don't do for the cash there isn't it some things you do just for the buzz you get out of it one minute on a crazy horse a minute 10 seconds is enough to make it feel like a lifetime and wind up with a snapped neck or a dislocated collarbone or have your brain shook loose by a bronc yeah i know Right. And that's it. It's like they're playing craps, not because they're trying to become rich, but just because when the adrenaline is is needed, these guys have to keep that adrenaline flowing constantly. It's like they can't have that that down moment where, yeah, they do start thinking about their mortality or, you know, how am I going to pay my bills tomorrow or next week or what happens if I get hurt? Like they 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 have to maintain that sort of like razor's edge throughout that that buzz needs and he uses that phrase a couple times the buzz buzz like they need that just constant like buzz of of <laughs> like just tough yeah. guy shit you know of like right and i think related to that is one of the most interesting like points of departure between the two films with in the lusty men there's so much of right there's the money element and then there is like that death drive for the adrenaline for the buzz for the rush but there isn't a lot of sanctity for the act of like being a rodeo performer you know there is like the ritualistic element um in terms of like doing the same type of performances over and over again but as opposed to night riders where it's very much about the purity of the endeavor that it doesn't seem like many of the participants in the lusty men are ever even bringing that up it is more about just you know enjoying the lifestyle and making the most of it while also trying to get as much money and prove themselves um amongst each other Look, I I would say this, you know, to me, it's the difference between a, a jock and a and a theatrical performer. You know, the the mm-hmm. people in the movies are are different in that sense. I, I I guess it's impossible to describe, you know, for these guys, like what it's like to ride a bull for. 10 seconds you know like i i honestly was thinking of uh it's like my favorite part in in point break i can't describe what i'm feeling 
and with all these guys, like it's you know they're they're macho guys. So like yeah, like when when Wes is bragging at that party, like it's so out of place because all the other rodeo guys are like, yeah, we've all won shit too, you know, like we've all felt that too. We just don't to brag about it anymore yeah. you know like we're playing it cool yeah we're playing craps yeah we're you know, <laughs> we are really busy playing craps <laughs> yeah. uh, and just like having scars all over our bodies and, and to an extent i think that's again that's like part of the the like the lessons in machismo that wes gets mm-hmm. wes is the outsider in this circuit you know all these guys are veterans of the circuit and he's the noob you know he is the the rookie he is the guy that's like learning the drill, learning the routines. Again, in that classic kind of Americana, Western cowboy kind of machismo, so much of it is, you know, you're a tough guy if you underplay things. You're a tough guy if you don't make a big deal about something brave or or dangerous that you do. If you play mm-hmm. it off as, yeah, it's just another day in the you office. You act like Robert Mitchum. Right, yeah, <laughs> or, or, you know, or half the guys who are like, yeah. you know, massive scars on their faces or book like shows them this like horribly like fucking gnarled leg. Yeah. And, and book is constantly talking about all the, like what you would consider to be like life threatening injuries he's had. And he's just kind of like, yeah, well I told the doc just patch me up and I was out there and the next day I won 600 bucks or whatever. Yeah, He you tells know? the story about like, he's like, my eye was out of its socket and they sewed me up. And the next day I won the championship. Yeah. Uh, and there's all those moments like, yeah, right. There's a really great sequence right when they arrive where they're sort of meeting all these different characters and each of them is like telling an, an incidental story. That's actually a cautionary tale. Tale. Like they're like this awesome thing happened, you know, telling it to Wes and and just being like, oh my god, that doesn't doesn't sound great. Yeah, and especially his wife. His wife oh, is no. like, it's yeah. I wrote bricks. down at that point, like when everyone's showing all their scars, I wrote down, this is a parade of grotesqueries. This is Cronenberg stuff. It's like, body art. Yeah, honestly, because yeah, they do they do like it is like a refrain in the movie, like all their injuries. Yes, I agree. I guess in that sense there's an implied religious quality to their connection (laughs) to the rodeo you know Uh, i mean people who are willing to endure such like physical agony in order to it it isn't just for the rush and for the money you know but yeah it is so much of it then comes from what they're withholding and not what they're sharing because to them that's where the integrity and the respectability comes in something that struck me is like they they weren't necessarily even impressed with a great ride like a great ride you know a guy that goes and and, and goes to the whistle, you know, is very exciting. But some of the first compliments that get thrown thrown around are like when a guy gets tossed from a bull or tossed from a horse and Mitchum says like, he bounced well. Like it's all, they're, they're constantly talking about like what to do when you land and when yeah. you get thrown and like how to avoid getting killed by one of these bulls. And so for them, like that's the real like macho shit because What's the, the specific line? And he says it. It's, it's like his mantra. There never was a bronze that couldn't be rolled. There never was a cowboy that couldn't be thrown. And so in that getting thrown, like, that's the inevitability. Like, mm-hmm. Wes, when he's first, like, getting, you know, he just decides, like, I'm going to ride this bull. And he's never ridden a Brahmin bull before. And everyone's like, dude, that is even 
more dangerous than one of these Broncos. Like that is the real shit. That's like, you know, they say like a horse is going to jump over a guy. A horse doesn't want to stomp you, but these bulls, they're going to try to fucking kill you. And, and, and he just says like, fuck it, I'm going for it. Like, I'm a tough guy. I'm not, you know, I can, I can handle this. And everybody's kind of like, are you sure? Yeah. Cause Jeff too is very much like, don't do it. Yeah. You know, like just let's just, work up to that. Yeah. Let's work up to that. And as he, as he then just, just charges ahead and Wes is like, fuck it. I entered myself in, I'm getting on the bull and mm-hmm. he gets put on yo-yo, this like notoriously dangerous bull he's like already getting nervous as he's like climbing onto the bull and and he's sort of freaking out and it's book i love it you know as as he's freaking out book says to him like hey well you'll get thrown all right that's the last thing you got to worry about you know like hey you don't have to worry about it you're gonna get thrown (laughs) off of this thing so like you're worried about shit don't worry about that because you are gonna get thrown You know, like it's not to be perfect. It's not to think that you're going to be this guy that just like, you know, flawlessly rides these these dangerous animals. What do they call it? Grabbing dirt. I think they say a couple times like, oh, you're going to grab dirt. The disconnect between the way the PA announcer is describing the rodeo and the way the rodeo guys are with each other and in behind the scenes, I think, uh, is an interesting tonal difference because what you were talking about, that sort of like religious reverie, like that's sort of what the PA guy was saying, but it's not what, yeah, the the guys are, right. are saying, right? So again, it's like part of this idea as well that that's, you know, a construction, right? Like to sell these things, the publicity of it, you know, is also where that sort of like poetry uh, may be sold, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also love how monotone and respectable the PA announcer is too, you know, like yes. he, like in the driest possible way, he will be describing the spectacular action that is unfolding in front of everybody um and i guess you know when i i've never been to a rodeo but i feel like most of the representations usually the host is like a pretty wild you know fast speaking texan or something like that and then you've got this guy who is he he truly yeah believes in the sanctity of it and he is like a a clear-sighted announcer um who will never get worked up at you know what he's seeing in front of him i think he also serves like a very important function on the level of just sort of explaining rodeo to the audience. Yes. Like, I think he's he's partly yes. there just for that, to sort of... Calf ex- roping 101. Yeah, because he does kind of, like, work through, like, in this event, this is what you're going to see that you would imagine people who've been to, like, rodeo circuits, like, they're they're much more familiar with. But, like, he, he's really kind of there as well to, to explain it to us so we really understand you know, what's happening for those of us who haven't been to rodeos. Like, Yeah, definitely. And like differentiating between all the different events themselves, because it's not just staying on top of a bowl for as long as you can. You know, there's a quite a different variety of activities that all these bulldogging, men are. Bulldogging, calf roping. I love bulldogging. And I think bulldogging's my fave. Well, that's like the PA announcer very dryly is like, now you can see how dangerous this contest really is. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's a get though, right? You know, you got to be laconic in these kind of situations. You know, you Mm got to act like you've been there before as much as, you know, we haven't. And and we're sort of going like, whoa, holy fuck. You know, there is that in that, in that circle, this, this, yeah. And again, Wes is, is in, in not, you know, well, I would say in not so many, but in so many words told, like, 
a part of this, if you want to be a real champion, is, is acting like you've been here before. Don't be this, this showboating noob. Don't upstage people and don't, don't act like you've, you know, you're, you're God's gift to rodeo. Because you're yeah. just another guy. Yeah, and that cycle is reinforced with the structure of the film. You know, the way it starts and ends and and begins again at the very end. Not to, to jump to the last shot of the movie, <laughs> which again, but it just starts a new cycle. And the film is like reinforcing this idea that it is just like churning people out, right? You know, here today, gone tomorrow. Like 25K today, nothing yeah. tomorrow. Or the, the, the great line that Robert Mitchum says at a certain point. I loved it. Chicken today, feathers tomorrow. We should say that this this film does have one of those like crackling uh, classic Hollywood scripts oh, where amazing. there is just so much innuendo and, and verbal comedy and one-liners and everyone's always quipping. And it's got, you know, it really helps the community vibe, right? Because everyone's always bullshitting and joking with each other and, and saying you know, ridiculous things. Yes. Just so many of the lines read like poetry, as we've talked about with like a couple of films in in the past on the gauntlet. And there's so much, you know, you're talking about the innuendo, right? Like when I was getting at that magnetism between Robert Mitchum and, and Wes, like there's all, there's so many lines, like with that, you could talk about that bisexual energy that's in the film that can be read in so many ways. I mean, at one point, you know, you've got Robert Mitchum who just says like, oh, woman, don't sidetrack me. You know, and then mm-hmm. even later on when he's um, kind of like leading Wes, you know, into the rodeo and getting him prepped as he's like a little nervous for his first ride, he even says, he's like, Forget about the crowd now, just relax. Don't fight him, work with him. Okay. It's like dancing with a girl, only you let him lead. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's just, yeah, there's so much buried within all of that. And then my favorite line of the film comes from Wes's wife when he is openly cheating on her at one of those, you know, big Roy Rogers gatherings that we talked about. And that's when, you know, she very fiercely says, Beat it, sister, he's got a horse. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a recurring thing in the film as well is the, uh, the sort of from the men, the the uh, correlation between women and horses and the language throughout the film is like referring to women as fillies or literally like lassoing them in a nightclub. When the woman who's, you know, trying to 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 sort of steal uh, Wes away from from his wife, like she goes at a certain point and she's like, let me put my brand on you. And yeah. she puts her lipstick on his arm. She's like, I'm putting your brand. That nightclub scene to me is just amazing, like where, where that confrontation happens. It also has, I think, like my favorite shot in the film. And the film is, I, I wouldn't say it's as expressive as some other Ray films. It is a little bit like tampered down, you know, black and white, but it certainly has its moments of expression and emotion with the Mm. camera as we expect from Ray. But just the one like comic shot that I loved is there's an extremely low angle shot 
and there's a, like a guy playing a guitar. He's like singing a song, like in the center frame. There's a woman on a couch. You see a leg. There's just like it's like a very busy frame. And then Book, who's just like hammered, crawls into the frame from the <laughs> side and asks like a woman for the, a drink and is like handed a drink from off screen above. Uh, and then there's like five people in this shot somehow, like wide yeah. angle. And I love it. He says like. <laughs> I'm so thirsty, I'll drink water. (laughs) What's amazing, again, is like this chorus that's constantly commenting on not even just like the film, but even like particularly what's ever happening in that moment in those scenes. But I really loved that there was like, there was in in like the the biggest moment of conflict in the film, uh, at least among the main trio, the sort of love triangle that starts to form, you know, as Wes is starting to, more and more openly kind of fool around on his wife, Jeff really starts to explore his attraction to Louise. And he kind of tries to swoop. He tries to sort of swoop in and and is like, you know, we could just run away from all this together. You know, clearly you don't really seem to be enjoying this life. And, and then Wes comes out and sees them kiss at this party. And the whole like party kind of erupts. And that's when Jeff decks Wes and just like lays him on his ass, just knocks him on his ass. And the party's just, everyone's so upset. And, and there's this like beautiful moment that I was like laughing about where, where Booker tries to save the party with a story. He's like, I, I can tell you a story about a time a fellow of mine, a friend of mine kissed some other guy's wife and everyone just like wanders away. And then he like hangs his head and trails off. And I was like, damn, it's so bad that not even one of Book's tales can like right. save the vibe, you know? God, yeah, I love Book. He kind of feels like a, a hybrid between Walter Brennan and Slim Pickens, but also with like a little bit of a melancholic tinge to it, you know? Yeah. I love that scene though when that that happens. Like the the moment between Hayward and Mitchum is really great and it's done in these like very close close-ups, like really expressive stuff. And uh yeah, just like that the way it's just like paced, it's so like melodramatic and emotional and very heartbreaking yeah he just you know he knows how to hit those moments and to give them space when they need it like his pacing is something that i think in in so many of his films that is like such a mark on his talent you know Mm -hmm. he's he's understanding sort of you know because let's be honest a lot of the rodeo stuff in the film is at times kind of like rushed through you know it's like we just sort of get through the rodeo stuff to to really explore these moments the moments in the hallways the moments in the trailers the moments you know outside the corral that sort of thing and ray is 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 using that to really add dynamism and weight to then of course the dramas inside the rodeo ring yeah, his cinema has like a really unique effect where you would never call it realism and yet you walk away thinking like I've never seen anything so real, you know? He's using melodrama in a way where the emotions are like overwhelmingly real. And so mm-hmm. much of that comes from both the performances but also like the attention to so many small details and just the way of life. Like I was really taken on this viewing by the sort of camper trailer community that they develop, um, like just like sort of the 
the collective rodeo campsite that everyone like takes their trailers to and all of that's really nice and especially you know as we've talked a lot about the way that um he sort of presents the community of men but he does part of his brilliance spends so much time showing the rodeo wives yes rosemary and grace and uh all our friends Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah there's i mean you get sequences of them you know luis goes in and like checks out the one of their campers and is just sort of like wow i'm really impressed like look this is like a hotel room is what Mm -hmm. she says yeah even then right like um you know, not just this sort of like cartoonish kind of like rodeo picture, but but a movie about people. And again, to the prompt and to what you were specifically asking us to look for, because there's rodeo movies, there's Westerns, there's people being tough and, and, and all this stuff. But the idea of like cry macho, as you laid it out for us, you know, this kind of sentimental and emotional exploration of being tough uh, Ray really hammers those moments for everyone, for the men, for the women, uh, that, that they all, this, this is not just a, a game as much as it might seem that way. And even for the audience to, to again, be like, oh shit, that guy that just like broke his fucking back. Yeah. He's got a wife who loves him and, and, and good God, like what the hell is she going through now? Yeah, Nicholas Ray never lets you forget the severity of any of it, and it especially comes through with all of those cutaways to the wives watching from the crowd. I mean, in a way, they almost feel like the wives of soldiers, except they're watching the battles like yeah. happen in front of their very eyes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For causes that they don't even necessarily believe in. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> then there's that element. They're against the war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love too. Yeah, there's so much attention to paid to the wives section, like during the rodeo. Uh, and again, you get a spectrum of, of views and feelings, right? Because there is Ginny, the one wife who is just like gung ho, loves the rodeo, loves it, <laughs> yeah. loves her husband, and is just like <laughs> stoked no matter what. And like she, yeah, she's a very odd presence. But I mean, it's a film full of odd presences, and that's to me, a Nicholas Ray touch, right? These misfits, these outsiders, these strangers, mm-hmm. uh, all these sensitive people and individualized people. I mean, again, we forgot to mention Book's daughter, Rusty, as well. Another just sort of like intriguing presence in the film. You're like, what's Rusty's deal? Like, she seems really cool. Yes. she's a, she, And she, you know, again, in like Ray's kind of gender-bending uh, way you know <laughs> uh, she's like a very kind of masculine presence she's like a very much a tomboy mm-hmm. uh, and even just having the name rusty which is sort of this agendered kind of name a genderless name like rusty but she's got this like really bizarre moment that uh <laughs> that uh it just like haunted me and it still haunts me but as we get to the end of the film and you know following the confrontation with Wes, where Wes mm-hmm. calls him out in the hallway after he kisses, you know, Wes's wife, after he kisses Louise and sort of is like, all you do is ride on me. All you do is, you know, put a fucking saddle on me and ride me for your own financial gain. Jeff decides I have to prove that's not it. I have to prove I'm my own man and I can be my own man anytime I want to. And Jeff decides he's going to suit up one last time, perhaps and ride in the big championship. And he does. And, 
you know, proves himself and everything, you know, shows everyone like he still got it. Yeah, that's a, there's an amazing like quick sequence of cutaways when when Jeff goes out there and it's like, yeah, he's killing it. And it just cuts to all the guys individually being like, he's the master. Yeah, he's the best. Uh, and just really, yeah, really laying it on in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it also to see, you know, again, Arthur Kennedy in that moment, you really do feel that like for all his bluster, he's now seeing it and you see him believe it and see him literally go in his mind like he is the best. And until that moment, I don't think his character thought that. No. He thought himself he was the best. Yeah. But he has a little problem getting off the horse as his foot gets caught in the Bronco stirrup. And it's bad. Very bad. So bad that uh, he breaks a rib that I guess, according to the the, the rodeo doctor, uh, punctures his lung, and uh, he is he's carted off and he's taken away and he's sort of we don't realize it at the time, but he's on his deathbed. And again, this is what I wanted to get at with the character of Rusty, the little girl. There's this really weird shot where it just like cuts to her and she's looking at at. At Robert Mitchum's character, who's just laying there, you know, probably internally bleeding in a really horrible way. And she just mouths, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird. And, like, I don't think that they explored, like, how much she, she, you know, like, whatever kind of relationship those two particularly had. I mean, she's around. She's enamored by all the rodeo guys. But she just, like, looks at him and just mouths, I love you. (laughs) It's a really bizarre flourish. I almost thought, like, a scene was missing (laughs) from the film. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, rusty. I was like, where the hell is this coming from? Yeah, I mean, she when they do meet early in the film, she's very excited to see him, and it does feel like, yeah, you would assume she just grew up around him, so he's like an uncle to her or whatever. But right then, I to go to that, yeah, it is an odd moment. I mean, Robert Mitchum's death is is kind of just like this this amazing scene where you Mm -hmm. know, like everyone's standing around him, and it's intercut as well with like Wes being called to the arena. Yeah. Uh, and he wants like, oh my God, what ha- what happened to Jeff? But then he's called to the arena and he goes. And then it like cuts back inside, you know, and, and Mitchum's doing his like, I'm dying really cool yeah, routine. Yeah, ain't so bad. I'm fine, really. The doctor's like, no, he's fucking dying. Yeah, and it's like this, you know, of course it ends up being this, like, very powerful moment where the last thing he says is he just sort of chuckles and says, guys like me last forever. Dies. And then he, and then, yeah, and then he just dies at that moment. Uh, and then Louise exits and, and meets up with Wes and they have the classic, you know, he's dead. Uh, and in that moment, they decide to leave the rodeo. And in a lovely little flourish, uh, they invite Book and Rusty to come back to the ranch with them and... and start a new life ray mirrors the the opening of when we're introduced to mitchum because the film opens with him walking out of this you know windswept garbage strewn empty rodeo stadium and he walks out underneath a sign that says exit a big sign that says exit but particularly in the opening he goes out of the exit that's for stock yep for the animals but then here at the ending 
you know, with with Wes sort of realizing like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not just this animal that's gonna break myself for the crowd. He walks out under a sign that says exit, but it's the the patrons exit. Yeah, the parking lot is in the background. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he goes, right, Mitchum goes out as stock and Wes goes out as a a real human who's going to the parking lot to leave and get not, a nine to five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And go punch the clock because uh, otherwise, you know, his lungs gonna have a couple ribs in it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I was gonna say too about the ending is also like after Wes and, and the crew leave through the front patron exit, it then starts over again where the PA announcer introduces a new rider to the circuit and we watch that rider in stock footage or whatever go out into the into the arena and like that's the note the movie ends on so it ends with another beginning again to imply yeah this like cycle of uh, self-destructive behavior right which is again so characteristic of ray cinema and yeah characteristic of yeah anyone who does something like uh, where you could die you know at your work or whatever like <laughs> riding a bull um it's an extreme lifestyle and i think it, it makes sense you know as like subject material for a ray film it like really fits what he's all about mm-hmm and I guess to repeat uh, an oft-repeated adage on on this show of not to get ahead of ourselves, there is quite a lot in common between the end of The Lusty Men and the end of Our King oh, in yes. Night Riders. But That's I guess, right. you know, without jumping to the end of Night Riders, initially we can talk uh, instead about the beginning of Night Riders to sort of orient ourselves. And I guess I was just curious about, you know, Marsh, you haven't seen the film before and, and neither have I. And I, I have seen the poster before and I knew like the general concept, like a Renaissance fair type event and traveling troupe that rode around on motorcycles. But the moment that we're greeted with those images of everyone in armor uh, on on those bikes was it was just shocking. Yeah, I was. <laughs> it, it was it was enough to convince me on the film. It was enough to like immediately pull me in and just be like, okay, like welcome to this unique world with all of these like insane stunts. And I, you know, we were talking about how Nicholas Ray uh, kind of takes the rodeo sequences and does away with them a bit quickly to focus on everything else. This film, being two and a half hours long, does focus on everything else. However, we do get the pleasure of enjoying these motorcycle sequences for extended periods of time. And they're, they're a nice bolt of electricity, too, when you do start to feel the uh, effect of the two and a half hour runtime mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, this ensemble. But um, yeah, I guess, Marge, I was just curious, you know, like your immediate reaction, you know, when I first saw everybody on the bikes... All I could think of was how desperately I would love to see something like this in real life. I was like, where can I go see a show where everybody's doing this? Well, look, I was sold on the film in the opening when you see Ed Harris naked. And from that yeah. moment, I was like, all right, he's got hair and he's not wearing any clothes. And he's he's whipping himself in a like in a pond, he's like whipping. He's like self-flagellating himself. He's beating his back with like a branch. That's right. Naked. Right. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it le- I watched it with Kyle, and you know, it, we had a blast, and it led immediately to a lot of questions. Like, uh, <laughs> Ky- you know, Kyle was like, "Did George Romero like invent this?" You know, and I was like, "I don't know, probably." <laughs> like, I don't think anything like this existed before or even after the movie, because this was, you know, a conversation Andy and I were having. Uh, where the fuck did this movie come from? Yeah, you know? like, where did it come from? And also just, like, yeah, this game, you know? Because there's other movies where, like, weird games have become, like, real or manifest in the real world, like in uh, The Blood of Heroes, right? Rollerball. Where, and Rollerball, where people have, like, tried to do that and stuff. And it's like, has anyone done this? I need to know. I mean, probably there's got to be somebody out there that saw Night Riders. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would say the same thing. I was watching, and all I kept thinking was like, God, why isn't this just something like we can go and see right now, anytime, like all the time? But then I guess you know the film, uh, like the bulls in the uh, in the Lusty Men, it kind of shows that the motorcycles themselves can be a little bit unruly, and that, oh, especially yeah. in such a low rent operation as um, oh, yes. this traveling troupe, you know, there's a bit of danger involved uh, even if you're just an onlooker <laughs> but I, i'm glad you brought it up because as marsh was saying where the fuck did this idea come from like the movie and i told him I'm like it actually wasn't romero's idea to do this to do you know the knights of the round table but on motorcycles or whatever so romero originally just wrote a script that was like just this he he said he had he had seen some like ren fair stuff and he had seen like some groups that you know these like larpers proto larpers i guess you'd call them who were like really into this stuff i think it was like the society for contemporary anachronisms or something like that mm-hmm. and he even said in another interview that it was like originally his first script was like a period piece romero wanted to do his take on La Morte Arthur, you know, mm-hmm. and he had written script and then he, he, he pitched it to the great Sam Arkoff and Arkoff read the script and was like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, you put them on motorcycles, you got something. <laughs> and Romero was like, nah, fuck that. What are you talking about? And then Romero's like, God, I thought about it. And I was like, God damn, he's right, you know, <laughs> like Arkoff, you know. So then Romero did. He just kind of like re- rewrote it, uh, contemporary, and and yeah, put them on motorcycles. And look, it is, I think, for anyone who's never seen this movie, because I think it is just this totally like weird anomaly, especially in his career, but in in so many movies. It's like, what the fuck? You see the poster even, like from the poster. I think it's one of the greatest movie posters of all time. And <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're listening right now, like, and and you don't know, just go ahead right now while you're listening to us and just Google Knight Riders and look at the fucking poster. And for me, that was the very first time that I saw the movie. It was like, I saw the poster. I saw Ed Harris in full knight's armor on a fucking badass motorcycle. And I was like, I got to see this. And -hmm. I think the initial like idea then is just kind of be, it's like, Oh, it's like Mad Max, but they're knights. Right. It's like, no, that's not what this is. No, it's actually so much more sensitive and complex. And it's really a story about people and performance. And also, you know, I think being Romero's most personal film, it's about independent creative endeavors it's about independent filmmaking and yeah. and using this this ren fair troupe on motorcycles as a means of really like diving into what it means to believe in what you're doing 
to work so hard at it and to, I mean, at times feel like it's all for nothing. It's all a struggle. And I, th I think, again, that's that's to me like why this film is so beautiful and where it comes from. But, but like we said, we were already getting into it. There's so many parallels between these two films because this film, like Lusty Men, at first, like the opening of the film is really just to sort of like introduce us to the circuit, the group, the players, the rules, and all of that stuff. And does so very well because it also has like an announcer figure who is explaining, you know, our first big sequence is just seeing them go through one of their performances mm -hmm. and we kind of learn the rules. I love any movie where you like learn the, the rules of a, a new game that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it is a film that needs those rules because, you know, you were even just talking about the poster here, right? Me having never seen it. I mean, I recently came to know what it was actually about talking to you, but I always thought that this film was a period piece, but it happened to have anachronistic <laughs> motorcycles in it. I just assumed based off the poster, I'm like, oh, sure it's like he's doing an arthurian legend and he's got just motorcycles to spice it up like but they were just like shipped back in time yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know like just something strange and then um you know having now seen it it is so key to me that the film is contemporary i can't even imagine it any other way because it is this you know as dave kerr very aptly described it it is an excessively personal work yeah mm -hmm. but i think that it is excessively beautiful then because of that i guess to just like kind of borrow from kerr's own assessment which i find to be very true i mean it is excessive it's two and a half hours oh, um, God, it's yeah. like totally bloated there's so much time is spent lingering on things that probably could have been you know much briefer but at the same time like so much of its unique power comes from how long we spend with this community yeah. how how deep into the mind of Ed Harris and everyone else we get about, you know, why they're so dedicated to this image and then what the outside forces are that are like encroaching on this image. And yeah, naturally it's the, the easiest way to read the film is to think about Romero's career and to think about, you know, the type of work he's making and it being maybe embraced as one sort of thing, but he thinks that there's, you know, a lot more nuance to it itself. And then this fear of selling out, right? Always working with lower budgets. Yeah, it's it's that purity, the purity mm -hmm. of the artist. And that's so much of what Night Riders is about. And the control. Yes. In in this work, like he's also being very critical of himself and critical of that desire for for control, you know, for the independent. It's like, I need that control. Like you're saying, it's like considered this act, you know, that it's like, oh yeah, they're just like in, in period costume. But very quickly, King William or Billy, Billy Davis, this like motorcycle rider who's who's created this troupe, um, he's approached by like this, this young fan, this like young kid who's just so enamored with him and what they're doing. And he, and he brings like this magazine, like cycle world it's called or something. Yeah. And like comes up to him after the performance and is just like, Oh my God, like I adore you. Will you please sign this? And he looks at the magazine, Ed Harris, and he's like, what the hell is this? And everyone's like, Oh, it's like a piece they did on us. And he's like, he looks at the kid with just these like intense eyes. And he's just like this, like eight year old boy. And he's like, I'm not going to sign that. I'm not going to give you an autograph. I'm not acting. This isn't, a, you know, he's like, what the hell? These people think I'm evil Knievel. And like, that's the thing, you know, because again, it's like he isn't pretending to be King Arthur for a crowd. Like he really does envision their group as this 
community. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like it also isn't an act as a performance because there are actually like governing rules for the troop and also the combat has consequences, mm-hmm. right? So within the like world of this film and within, yes, they're like ostensibly circus performers, but people can dethrone him. Yes. Right? That is like real. And yeah. when they're out there on their motorcycles jousting and hitting each other, it's real. As much as it's kayfabe or sort of like likened to wrestling as it is in the film by Hoagie Man, played by Stephen King in a little <laughs> cameo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like there, there is a comparison here to be made to wrestling where it's like, yes, it's fake, but yes, it's real. Yeah. Again, I was just like shook by the fact I'm like, what do you mean that Tom Savini can just like dethrone Ed Harris and become the new king? Like there are actually like, yes, this this community has like laws right. and order. And it, of course, yes, comes from the sort of vision of Sir Billy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not an act. I mean, and that's the thing. Like Tom Savini plays Morgan, the Black Knight, who is basically like the best knight, uh, the most worthy. Mm-hmm. And, and he does seek the crown. He seeks more recognition at the beginning of the film because he's like, look, I'm the fucking best. I keep beating Billy. And we see that those stakes because in that first competition, like you're saying, Marsh, Billy decides after Morgan has basically just been like unseating all the competition that Billy's going to suit up. He's going to get on his motorcycle and he's going to take on Morgan and, and knock him down a peg. But Morgan kicks his ass, knocks him off his bike. And you see the rest of the nights like they jump on their bikes and there's this girl in the crowd. She has a crush on one of the young knights, Sir mm-hmm. Allen. And Sir Allen just cuts her off at a certain point. He's like, I got to go. We got to get on our bikes. And she's like, why? What's going on? And he's like, we have to defend the king. If he is forced to yield, he loses the fucking crown. And he's dead serious. No one in the crowd knows what the hell's going on. <laughs> and these knights like rush out to like, to meet the challenge of Sir Morgan, to meet Tom Savini's like <laughs> attempt to like get the throne. And it leads to such a, right away. I mean, we're in the first like 15 minutes and, and we see the first like major challenge for the crown and the stakes for these people could not be higher. And, and again, right, it's like, it, it is an act. So with Stephen King's character sitting there, hoagie man, he's just like eating this nasty sandwich and he's just going, it's all fake, it's all staged. It isn't because the outcome, as you said, right, like it is not predetermined. Anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And that intensity is so beautiful because you can obviously read it as how Romero interprets his own career and his own art. You know, maybe he's been pigeonholed as this artist who, you know, works in horror exclusively and that his films might not be worth as much as other people's work because it is genre cinema. And here he is, you know, you've got the crowd who might be the critics, right? You know, Stephen King sort of standing in for like the, you know, the gross New York Times critics just like calling it all a farce and just like laughing it off as, you know, just Mm -hmm. like some junk entertainment and, George Romero is being like, okay, you're laughing at me, but this is real. This is me right here. This I, I believe in this, and this is my art. Mm-hmm. And you know, something that's really interesting, I, I read a review. I forgot who, who, whose review it was. I think it was somebody in The Guardian or something. And he pointed something out that I hadn't really thought of until this time around, which is that basically 
it would be so easy to caricature these people who are dressing up in suits of armor and getting on motorcycles and, and yes, having council meetings and all this stuff. Like it's, it's dorky. It's ridiculous. These LARPers, but actually in Romero's film, all the caricatures are the audience, the people. Mm -hmm. They're like the two dimensional characters in the film. Hoagie man, Stephen King, who's like so over the top in his like, this is all a, this is a joke. And like drunken buffoons are in the crowd or the, the corrupt cop who's doing a WC Fields impersonation at a yeah. certain point. <laughs> like, you know, Martin Ferrero, who, who plays the businessman who, who sees a quick buck to be made here. Like he's just like, again, a caricature of like the sleazy, like 80s you know entertainment business guy i have uh i have an important note on that fact he <laughs> coined the phrase in this film all right all right all right did you notice <laughs> no <laughs> that he says it years before <laughs> mcconaughey so i'm calling bullshit on mcconaughey martin ferrero is the original miami vice forever yes yeah my favorite of those two-dimensional characters is the alcoholic father that we only really see in the beginning but that he's just like so fat and pathetic that he can't even like stand up on his own two feet without assistance uh, as he's enjoying this fair oh yeah just a big lump of lard you know again in this in in the film like we're really we then get it like really introduced to like every Everyone around this 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 whole community. I mean, it's a it's a it is a community. That guy believed in family filmmaking, and when you watch this film, like, damn, I think more than any other film, you really get it because in so many of the the tiny roles, we have people that you have seen in in several Romero films, and and be very prominent in other Romero films, but here with a small part, like mm -hmm. he's brought everybody along to this they're all here they're all a part of the community in these you could even argue almost thankless parts with with barely like three or four lines among them but i mean it really is this kind of like utopian society i mean it's like interracial relationships gays straight black white i mean just about every ethnic group is is a part of this troop and and living outside of society in this just i mean Yes, dork, dorky, very dorky, but... But it's also cool because there's motorcycles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. like grease monkeys, you know? I mean, and again, there is, you know, like any utopian vision, right? It's sort of like challenged in a variety of ways. And I keep thinking about, you know, a moment uh, in the film when Tom Savini's character, Sir Morgan, says... I was never into this King Arthur crap anyway. I was into the bikes, man. Bikes... That's all I got. You know, and not you, just it, King Arthur. Yeah, bullshit. right. Like, and you do get that feeling again. It's like Romero commenting on filmmaking and going like, "Yes, there's, there's always going to be those people who like are only partially with your vision, or maybe are even actively fighting against you while also being valuable members of your community." You know, and like it really does. I mean, there's so many just like minor conflicts in the film between. I mean, there's. 20, 30, 40 main characters of this troupe. Like, it really is an ensemble. Yeah, and so much of it is an ensemble hangout film, which is yeah. like probably my, you know, obviously favorite genre. Like, there's nothing, nothing more delightful than that. But yeah, I mean, you know, you had mentioned that the performances or the roles themselves feel a little bit thankless, but I don't know. I don't know if I would even uh, agree. Like, I think that 
each of them, or at least most of them, are definitely given their time to shine. And I think that for being an ensemble film to have like individual moments like that is, you know, that's pretty worthwhile. I mean, even the so the announcer, there's like a great early sequence when they're all hanging out by the fire, you know, after a big day's performance. I don't know if it's great. You know, I kind of outed him at the, the <laughs> campfire. Well, yeah, but it felt, I don't know. To me, it felt like brutally real. You know, they're yeah. all really they're all really tactless about it. You know, they they kind of just like put him on the spot they it's this awkward moment we should probably explain what we're talking yeah. about yeah, sorry yeah, yeah. 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 no <laughs> so this is a very awkward moment that ryan's talking about like after one of the first performances they're 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 all sitting around the fire and angie who is like the the, the grease monkey the mechanic again like uh, this very traditionally masculine role is just this like squeaky mousy woman she turns to the announcer pippin and is like come on, you're gay, right? You know, and it's like she outs him in front of mm-hmm. everybody in this very awkward kind of way and he's extremely uncomfortable by being put on the spot in that way and they're sort of like arguing and she's like, I don't care, I love you. Like, we're all friends here. I just want to know who you are. And there is this like discussion there at the fire about like being true to yourself, like just being who you are and being open with it and she's trying to encourage him like she's trying to encourage him, but yes. man, it's like it's a really well done scene because he's yeah, like, that's what I was getting at. I mean, I think that Romero, you know, realistically, like within that environment and that like time period, that that yes. if these are just these people <laughs> traveling, like that's might be how they approach it, right? Like a bit gruff and tactless. But Romero is very clear to show you how much pain that that causes him. That even the people this man feels closest to in their attempt to relate to him or to try and get to understand him more, like they inadvertently caused this pain. And then it's later followed up on. And he sort of gets his moment, you know, in the truck with her where he explains like what the failure was in that. And he's like, well, he, you know, I don't even, I don't even know like what I am. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there was nothing helpful about the way you did that in front of everybody, you Mm -hmm. know? So even she gets it thrown back at her later in the film. And then he even further on the chain, right. Is like sort of embracing it by the end, you know, where him and the uh, backup MC kind of have like, yeah, this little like love affair that starts to emerge and blossom in the film because ultimately they were aggressive and tactless and, and, and not great about how they did it, but they were like, dude, you want to like be kissing guys around here? Like just do it. Yeah. Look at Rocky. You know, yeah, Just very like aggressive inclusion yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Cause they do. They, they point to, they point to Rocky. Who's the, the female knight. So there's only one night that's a woman and it's Rocky. Mm-hmm. And I guess in that moment, it's also like implied again, awkwardly that, yeah, well, she's a lesbian. Look at her. She's fine with it. And she kicks the shit out of everybody, you know? <laughs> yeah. And she's like, yeah, no one fucks with me. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's like, again, it's like sort of this really like utopic kind of idea that he has about identity and society of like, why can't we all just be who we want to be? And, and, and not give a shit about what it means. Again, what's so beautiful about the film, because with his character, with with so many of the other characters, the journey in this film is is really about that, about learning who you are and either struggling against it or struggling with it, you know? Uh, certainly from, from King William. Like, King William is, like, 
so it's established early on, set in who he is and what he stands for, so much that, you know, Ed Harris, in in only an intense way that Ed Harris can, stare down an eight-year-old and, like, destroy his dream, you know, <laughs> because that's not who he is. He's so sure of himself, you know? Mm-hmm. But all the characters around him, like, it's it's really their journey to grow and to discover you know, through him and with alongside him, I guess, realize that. Returning to something you had mentioned before related to that, in that Romero is still extremely critical of Ed Harris and then thereby self-critical of his own commitment to his art and his vision and, you know, the way he sees the world. And I think one of the the first, like, little bit we get is, of course, him denying the autograph to the eight-year-old. But then I think the key scene that initially calls into question the way that Ed Harris is behaving is when he is so set on standing up for his ideals that he won't pay off a local corrupt police officer that is hounding them, talking about permit fees and just giving them a hard time. And when Ed Harris, you know, denies that, the cop then later returns and busts one of the members of the troop for possession of just pot. And Ed Harris is like, well, if you're taking him in, you have to take me in with him so I can make sure I know that he's going to come back okay. You get this horrifying sequence where Ed Harris is put in the adjacent jail cell he's not in the same cell as uh his fellow performer and the cop is just brutalizing him and ed harris you know he's refusing to pay so he just has to sit there and endure it and also then like plead for mercy and for it to stop but that's also where the the crack comes in right because morgan you know right away when the cop is again approaching it's just like you're a fucking asshole you're an idiot all you had to do was give him a couple hundred bucks and none of this would be happening this guy wouldn't be going to jail and then even after that like this guy wouldn't have gotten his fucking head beat in why did he get his head beat in because of your your you know uh, fundamental desire to like to yeah to to stick to your ideals so much so that it's not just affecting you it's affecting all of us and that's where really the the major then crack develops where right you know morgan then sees an opportunity to kind of go maybe this group shouldn't be sticking together maybe king billy king william isn't the man to be leading us anymore so in that in that scene the scene where uh, the guy is beaten by the sheriff and, and Ed Harris's character has to watch. It's later recounted in the movie in what I found to be probably like the purest expression of the film's philosophy where the guy, he's got like a black eye. He's like, all face beat. is all swollen. Yeah, his yeah. face is all swollen from this cop beating. And he says, you know, I've been beat up before and it, it, it was bad, you know, uh, but this time I was, I was laughing, mm-hmm. you know, because, I love what I do and I love these people and like, that's it. And the guy says, you know, the time that he was beaten before in jail was when he was, you know, marching for civil rights in the South. Right. You know, because again, like so much of like the group that he's collected, they are, you know, at, at various points referred to as hippies, as long hairs, as rejects, you know, and, and, and that is you really, as the film progresses like you get that again this is still like this is 1981 this is the, the just the start of reagan's america this is following the the painful fall of those you know 60s ideals through the the 70s and 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 that's what so many of these people are you know like this guy was somebody who marched for civil rights and now 
this is his home. Like, and he's finding those same kind of, kind of ideals playing out here of, of equality, of equity, of brotherhood and camaraderie, regardless of your race, your sex, your, your, you know, who you want to fuck, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And that's it for him. Now he's like, this beating was one of the best beatings I ever took because it means so much to be here with everyone. And it's like, again, in, in contrast to the silver bullet entertainment plot line uh, with Martin Ferrero, right, where Tom Savini as Sir Morgan tries to split away from uh, the troop and start his own thing with his Black Knights. And that, to me, is such a great early depiction of sort of like 80s commercial aesthetics because we get to see like, yes, not only like, is there a scene where they're like lounging at the pool of this mansion that they're like being wooed at but we see like a a photography shoot uh, (laughs) for Sir Morgan and it's like yeah it's like Maxim magazine level kind of like uh, (laughs) he's wearing like the skimpiest little like leather briefs and like a big silver cape and he's being draped by like half naked women and he's like lounging on a big like Knight Riders sign or something like that Right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And there's, there's disco all this, music like, playing. Yeah, there's yeah. Di- there's all this like smoke in the room, and it's yeah, it's just this like really heightened thing. That whole montage of excess is just so fucking funny. Because oh, even yeah. then, when it's like the idea that they're selling out and they're like living this like rock and roll lifestyle, <laughs> you know, we get inside their hotel room, but it's just like all the guys like beating each other up and smashing yeah. each other with different furniture in the room at like a Ramada Inn too. Right. You know? Remember, this is like Romero trying. <laughs> to do you know hollywood excess like that's the idea yeah, that yeah that joe bon tempe uh is 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 wooing them with all this really expensive shit and clearly like the pool was like a friend of romero's who was like yeah yes. you can shoot at my house i got a pool and then they were like right. what kind of hotel can we in it's like a fucking best western you know and they keep being like we're in washington dc yeah right we love it wow we're partying in dc yeah, yeah very funny uh-huh. yeah another thing like a classic you know just like constant with romero's work is the regional appeal you know this film is completely full of all of that you know that's it it maintains that visual style that beauty of just like being out in the woods like near pittsburgh all the crowds <laughs> are clearly just people that he's like sourced yeah. you know from around from town the pennsylvanians all the, yeah <laughs> oh you know another connection between these films is they both have parades yes. and i loved in night riders how yeah you know like romero just went up and put up flyers in some town and was like yeah, come mm-hmm. see the night right and there's just a bunch of people out there being like what the fuck is going yeah. on here <laughs> yeah. oh yeah as they're all just riding down the streets and in, in, in suits of armor on motorcycles like yeah i'm going yeah. to see that so there's shit. some like yeah there's some real like uh yeah like neo-realist uh, uh p- appeal there i think in some of like the crowd work in terms of you know it's not like he had that many ADs, you know, to, to wrangle what was going on. Oh, no. But again, like, there, there's so many similarities between the film because that's basically like, you know, one of the big differences there. It's sort of like Morgan is kind of, in a certain respects, kind of like Wes Merritt. You know, he's this kind of guy that like, he then buys into the celebrity of it all. Yeah. The, 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 oh, I got women fawning all over me and I can be this big celebrity and star and that's why I'm doing this because I can make a lot of money doing this stuff. And and Morgan's character like fully like goes into that mode of I got to get mine. I got to get mine. Whereas Billy is standing there on the outside going, it was never about the money. I know we can make a load of money 
but as as soon as we compromise ourselves, all of this 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 purity that we have is going to start to to drain away, and then it begins this kind of section of the film where you start to see Camelot rot from the decadence, from the temptations. There's that amazing like performance where everything just starts to go wrong. All the the discipline that they have as like a group working together just starts to like go lax. The guy who was, you know, in charge of the PA system just like is like, yeah, fuck it. And he puts on like disco music. The crowd starts to go wild and the nights just lose all of their their choreography and really do just start beating the fuck out of each other for the crowd's entertainment for their bloodlust you know yeah. and yeah and i and i love how romero implicates himself constantly with billy's like refusal to change because it is quite obvious in a very clever way that like a lot of the the grievances or gripes of the the people are 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 fair mm-hmm. and they could be addressed in in pragmatic ways but billy has sort of yeah he's maybe taken it a little too far in his kind of like fundamentalism and yeah maybe okay you still don't have to pay off the cop but you can like you know treat people a little better i mean he even has a breakdown at one point about how as this sort of figurehead he's removed himself um in kind of a deliberate way and and now he's thinking like that was very bad i'm actually very disconnected from all of these people i need to like get back in touch with the grassroots with all the people that are actually the show yeah right and this is like where the presence of his merlin like is a huge part of the film and my favorite character in the movie, uh, Merlin. And I don't know if you guys know who... Brother Blue. Brother Blue. So (laughs) Merlin is played by the legend Brother Blue uh, in his only, in his only, like, film where he actually, like, played uh, a character of any kind. Uh, I mean, if you, like, go and look at his credits, it's Knight Riders and, like, two documentaries about himself playing himself so this was the only time and again to Romero's credit of again making a movie about outsiders and and storytellers who really believe in what they do and are just these these singular uh, individual kind of just special beautiful talents he's got brother blue this this amazing you know the the official storyteller of like Boston right I mean this guy is amazing you know Merlin is his spiritual guide in the same way that you know arthur had a spiritual guide and he's the booker of this film like in lusty men you know just this sort of like fount of of humor and wisdom and 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 he's a doctor (laughs) he is also yeah actually like the the paramedic of the of the troop (laughs) except for when there is that one like horrifying accident and he even he realizes that like he is like not going to be able to get the job done and he so there's this incredible moment where when, like as I was mentioning that the the bikes being like bulls and and them sort of like losing control and being unwieldy someone does fall off their motorcycle and it kind of takes off on its own and is heading straight for 
um, a child in a stroller and they do like knock the stroller out of the way and then in this like it's again talking about the visual style of Romero it's this incredibly like rough and brutal hit when the motorcycle crashes into the mother um, of that child because then again like with that like unadorned raw look to his films like it just looks so real Molly and I like gasped when she got hit (laughs) by that bike it's horrifying and then when you see her splayed, like the way her body is like spun around and her spine looks like twisted and her gut is like bloody and hanging out of her shirt, it's yeah. a brutal hit for a film that <laughs> is like not particularly like graphic. Gory. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, it's not like it is like emotionally quite violent, but not um, a- anything physical. But yeah, even then Merlin then like runs to her and even he says like, we need a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> He's yeah, like, I, we need a- I, I can't handle this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's uh, that's like Romero's battleship Potemkin sequence. You <laughs> yes. know, yes. just like you got the baby carriage, you got the mother, extreme violence, some rapid cutting. You know, oh, call yeah. it a day. We're not an act. Yeah. Well, neither's bull rope. You know what I mean. You do three or four of these big gigs this summer, you can do whatever the hell you want for the rest of the year. Hell, this guy's talking about setting you up with all fancy new costumes. He's even talking about setting up some deal with some cycle manufacturer. I'm surprised you even brought this guy around, Steve. <laughs> well, damn it, Billy. I'm just trying to help you along. You guys is the most fun I get in my life. I just don't want to see you all break up. Damn it, Billy, you all stone broke most of the time. And, and you're taking every damn long hair that knows how to make a pair of sandals, and you want to pick up the Blue Cross tab? Do you have the slightest idea what gas is selling for, or two-by-fours, or hamburger, or anything else? You think it's breaking up? Because the film just, like, refuses to move at a pace other than its own, it's mm-hmm. like, God, it's, yeah, I just love how, yeah, how thorough it is, right? You You see so much of what's happening and you see it close you see it wide you see it from start to finish like oh, you yeah. just really get it all and really without exaggeration i think throughout like amazing stunt work every like, time incredible. a bike like did a front flip i was like how i was screaming like <laughs> looks like there were looked like there were several broken necks on this film and i'm sure there weren't or at least that i know about but like <laughs> man there was some yeah there was some real like tough stunt shit because like on the one hand yeah the combat is yeah ren fair quality and that's fine didn't bother me at all it's very charming but it's not like extreme action or anything right it is kind of like slow or creaky or just like very simple yeah but on the other hand there's crazy shit oh yeah <laughs> a lot of people go like tumbling over like handlebars yeah, but and... the, right the stunts seem very dangerous in a very thrilling way but, but that's also like that's also covered again in the same way that in the lusty men you know they talk about like you're gonna fall you know, anytime, like I've talked to anybody that's ever ridden a motorcycle, they've all this, they've always, people have always said to me this, like, well, when you crash, not if you crash, like people who ride bikes, like it's very easy to take a spill on a bike, mm-hmm. just riding down the fucking road. You know, I've heard, I, I know, I knew a guy who got killed because, you know, he just hit a patch of oil, you know, that was just in the center of a lane and he just slid on it. These guys are also trying to knock each other off of bikes with maces and, and, and lances and all that stuff. 
but it's like they know they're going to fall. That's part of the spectacle. But it's it's established at a certain point that it's like Ken Freeze, the blacksmith, says like, look, we're not trying to kill anybody out here. Like, yes, we're unseating each other. We're, we're trying to knock each other off. But we aren't trying to take each other's heads off here. So knock each other around. Fair play. We've got armor on, you know, knock yeah. each other around a little bit. I will say some of the hand-to-hand combat, though, is, like, pretty intense because it it's like it is like lumbering but it suggests that there's like a significant amount of weight in all of those weapons like that mace uh like man when they're whacking each other i i don't know that stuff felt like it hurt pretty bad too this is good sound design right yeah you know oh yeah a lot of good clanking yeah (laughs) but i guess i would say that's what it differs from with like my own like experience like seeing the ren (laughs) fair yeah not enough clanking fighting Early on in that first fight where he's unseated basically by Morgan and almost loses the crown, uh, he gets cut very bad, very bad, almost kills him. Like, you know, as, as Merlin explains, like, just missed the artery. And he, like, talks to Merlin about this vision he's had. Yep. And he sees he's been having these dreams where he's seeing this black bird, this black bird that seems to be, you know, calling to him, you know, is this omen. And then he even like Merlin's kind of like, all right, man, like, you know, I, I get it. But he's like, I thought you be- you were the one, you know, you helped guide me here. Don't you believe in this magic? And Merlin gives that beautiful speech where he tries to define what magic is. And I also believe it's sort of like, what they're talking about here is like the magic of the creative spirit, like the magic of, of somebody who, you know, like Romero is, is putting it all out of the line and doing whatever he can to make something with his vision. And Merlin says to him, say, man, if I didn't believe in magic, I'd still be treating gallbladders, prostates and stuff like that. See, magic ain't got nothing to do with organs and glands and busted necks. Magic got to do with the soul, man. Only the soul got destiny. It got wings. It's fly. That's magic. The body. Body just got a few minutes down here in the dirt with the rest of us. So it's this like moment where again they're talking about like the difference between the physical presence that we have and and the physical body. That's something that's explored in both of these films, right? Guys mm-hmm. who are willing. Or, or seemingly like obsessed with testing their body and breaking their body, but that through all that, beyond that, maybe what people can't see, the thing that really matters the most is like what's inside of us. That's right. And in fact, his vision of the Blackbird comes true as during one of their performances, yeah. there appears out of the fog a warrior with a blackbird on their armor. This like young Native American boy. Yeah, with a yeah. feather in his in his cap, right? So again, to complete the sort of Romero uh, interracial uh, liberal utopia of his mind or whatever, uh, yes, we have the indigenous character who comes in and, ha- and has it out with, you know, King William in the arena. Uh, ultimately, he loses, but then is like brought into 
the troop. And so connecting it back to Lusty Men, it's like we are now getting these like cycles of renewal and new people. And here's another person to who just appeared out of nowhere from a dream uh, to join the troop and be another element of this place. Well, we actually do see him earlier in the film um, during the parade sequence, which right. is funny that we talked about how everyone, you know, there's all these people that are clearly locals that are just sort of shocked at, you know, like, oh God, what on earth? Like, why are all these guys on motorcycles? But then it's a nice contrast with him who sees the troop riding around on the cycles and thinking like, I need to like either prove i guess his motivations are like almost entirely unclear but he he does feel the need spiritually to go head to head with ed harris well again right that's like there's so many layers that are in this film where it's like this boy never says a single word Mm -hmm. like throughout like once he shows up there's never a word exchanged like he never utters anything but now is here and like william is like i mean he specifically says i've been waiting for this guy yeah, you know? and he's just like sitting next to Ed Harris in like every scene after that, saying nothing. Yeah, uh, and then there is, as you were gonna say, Andy, there's uh, the shot of him being knighted by the river, and you want to talk about the film departing from that like low budget naturalism. That is like a shot that took my breath away. Something I was not expecting from Romero necessarily, and all of a sudden it's like yeah, here's a shot that's, like, worthy of Excalibur mm-hmm. uh, in this, like, knighting this, the Blackbird by the river. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's, like, it's a real stunner. Which, uh, by the way, came out the same year as this movie. Excalibur? Yes. Yeah, of course. Both yeah. John uh, Borman's Excalibur and Knight Riders were released in 1981. But I guess, yeah, you know, so now we have sort of reached, though, this point that I hinted at at the beginning of, you know, transitioning into the Knight Riders discussion is this final fight. You know, in that moment, what we talked about where each of them have now gone off uh well everyone really has gone off and faced you know looked inside themselves um searched for the grail like they finally discovered it and it's it's this moment where sir alan just rides up to morgan's hotel and and lays it out for him and says you know there can be only one king morgan only one king at one time you know, you can't just ride off on your own. Like, if you're with us, if you really do believe in this and you're part of this, then, like, we are in this together and we got to do this right. So they then come back. The knights, you know, they've all returned and they have this moment where they 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 lay out the terms for how this dispute is going to be handled, right? It's going to be all the knights, the two sides, Sir Alan and his, his boys against Morgan and the Black Knights. Who, by the way, have an up grade because of their uh, dabbling in selling out they return to the arena with like glittery new costumes yeah, and like bike right. decals yeah <laughs> but then yeah they get there and they they lay out the terms and it's like okay so here's what we're gonna do this you know last man standing and if it's if it's morgan he gets the crown if it's alan then billy stays the king uh and that's when they lay out the terms like if you're knocked off your bike you're out. We're not trying to kill each other here. We're just trying to we're just trying to settle this settle this internal dispute. Which they do. And it's back and forth and it's uh anybody's game. And it ends with like what are those things called? The little like sidecar yeah. uh vehicles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they 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 were calling them like 
hack hack drivers like they were calling them like yeah, some, they're basically like chariots yeah it's like a motorcycle with like a sidecar attached and one guy dangles off it and tries to unseat someone so alan's on one and, and morgan's on the other because again it isn't about a performance it isn't about a performance this is real for there's them. no crowd in the final uh battle there is no crowd present and even the photographer i mean we haven't even talked about friar tuck but like yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's too much of a can of worms open but there's like a photographer present and she starts to take pictures and and friar tuck the, the guy who puts his hand in front of her camera and says we're keeping this in the family. Yep. This is not for show. This is real. This is for us. This is for us. My favorite thing about this entire like sequence is that Ed Harris has this like insane benevolent smile. Oh yeah. The whole t- he looks like high. Yeah. yeah. He looks like <laughs> he just smoked a joint. And like his knights are like losing and they're like you know, filing in in front of him, like in the loser's chair. And they're chair. so crushed. And they're so sad. And he is just like smiling like he just smoked a fat dube. Oh, yeah. He's so <laughs> proud of them. Yeah. He's so overcome with joy because like this is all that he wants. He just wants them to do it right. And they are. They're finally doing it right. And he keeps like mouthing to them like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. Like, I know you. It's It's, it's fine. You know, and again, this is where for me again, the, like the really cry macho shit comes in because it's like he doesn't care that he's gonna lose his fucking crown. Like he he doesn't care. It isn't about the crown. It's about like the ideals. It's about the beliefs and sticking to them. You know, and so even when his guys are like, "Dude, I'm sorry, I'm fucking blowing it for you," he's just like, "That's not what it's about, man." It's just about doing this fair and doing it right and facing each other like toe to toe and just like carrying yourself with honor whether or not you you fall. And there is indeed a regime change at the end of this sequence as Morgan defeats Sir Allen and is uh, crowned on the spot. You would think in so many ways that Morgan has been positioned as this sort of like antagonistic presence. Like he's the Black Knight. He's like a bad guy or something. But he isn't. He really isn't. He was just a worthy knight and and a, a valued member of the group. So even when he wins, there's kind of like this surprise where everybody's like, what the fuck? Like Morgan's going to be the king now? And Morgan almost like goes up to 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 Ed Harris. You know, Thomas Vini goes up to like Ed Harris and is like sheepish. Like, I, I, I didn't expect, I don't know if I was like expecting this, you know? And Ed Harris just like, is like, dude, this is it. This is what it's all about. And like takes off the crown and is like, again, got that crazy smile. He's so happy. And he crowns Morgan in that moment. And Tom Savini drops to his knees and is himself <laughs> overcome with emotion. I mean, it's like, come on, when you say, again, male weepy, I'm just like, yeah. this is like macho bullshit. Like, you know, totally. but it's so incredibly touching. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I guess you like win in the superficial way of like this film actually had the machismos weeping on screen. Yeah, literally cried. Crying because of their like macho beliefs and the things they, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're so dedicated to. Oh yeah, god damn it. It's like, again, it's so 
earnest, you know? Mm-hmm. It truly is George Romero's one from the heart. Oh, God, oh, yeah. Without a doubt. <laughs> but yeah, so after this regime change, right, Ed Harris then, like, with this successfully, like, completed, he feels the need to go and then, like, tie up all the other loose ends of the film. That's right. And, well, you know, just ride off as well. He can't be any, no longer. Yeah, he's, he, like, in exile. Yeah. Right. The first bit of business, now that he's, like, no longer king and beholden to his own sanctity and, like, rites of passage, he then, like, goes to the thing that has clearly been chewing away at his soul throughout much of the film, and that is back to the corrupt cop. And he confronts him in this diner. It's like a McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) It's like some (laughs) shitty fast food place. (laughs) Right. And yeah, he beats the shit out of him and he starts tossing him around the entire restaurant and throughout as they're causing property damage. So one of the like people who are working there is ringing up the totals onto the uh, cash register. Mm-hmm. So you see, you know, like the analog numbers like constantly rising and rising. But yeah, it's a really cathartic and satisfying pummeling that he gives that police officer. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I think, again, a really, like, well-done, like, moment of, like, these anachronisms sort of, like, colliding, right? You know, because... There's all the shots of him, like, riding down, like, busy streets and, like... In his armor. Yes, in the full, yes, in the full (laughs) regalia. The ex-king is now just, like, driving next to a semi and going to a fast food restaurant. To beat up a cop who's eating a cheeseburger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And And he, again, has his new like sort of uh vassal with him you know this the native american boy the blackbird is riding with him just sort of like flanking him from behind following him on this this now solitary journey to as you said sort of like put all of his affairs in order then he goes to the boy that he feels like now in hindsight that he may have wronged or at the very least now that he is free from the strict code that he has developed uh in his life and amongst all the people that he holds community with he goes to this boy and he interrupts the classroom he like solemnly walks in in the middle of a lesson the teacher has no idea what to do because here comes this like (laughs) battered and like bruised man covered in dirt and in like a knight's armor he's bleeding profusely he's bleeding he he looks really horrible and he passes the the sword on to the young boy he apologizes (laughs) for the disruption and then he steps out and of course like could you imagine anything like that happening to you when you were eight years old like like and the idea of the teacher just even attempting to try and like wrangle the class back together in any sense of normalcy after that moment is like hilarious you know like <laughs> he is now in control he has the blade you know he's he's the one who'll be holding court in that classroom but yeah so he tidies up all his affairs and then he literally completes his death drive he rides his cycle he's leaking blood he's you know taking off down the highway and then there's a collision and his bike is obliterated and he himself vanishes from the frame you know like they didn't they did Romero didn't want to show us his like body completely torn asunder and his limbs like <laughs> scattered on the road it's it's more spiritual than that it but it has it just has so much in common and yet there are so many key differences with the ending of the lusty men where mm-hmm. here they both of them are you know this final performance this final journey and they both you know end up dead but it is this religious and spiritual act as they're completing they're following through on their death drive now that everything has been 
taken care of. Maybe not in the case of Robert Mitchum, but um, certainly in the <laughs> yeah. case of. Well, but again, comparing it to or or you know just bringing it into conversation with the lusty men, like as we discussed, you know, the last thing that Mitchum says is, you know, guys like me live forever. And it's the same idea here in him passing the crown and then passing the sword to this young boy. Like you said, can you imagine being this young boy or whatever? This like first grader that's like, what the hell? But it's like, now what do you do with this sword? You have to take something you know, you have to take this sword and do something with it, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. become a motorcycle riding, you know, king or whatever, but like th- this has to now live through you. Like we will live forever. We have to live forever. And the troop is going to live at least for the time being, as indicated by the uh, funeral uh, at the end, right, where we see everyone and they're all there. And again, you do get this sense of renewal right this passing just as in the lusty man where it's like there goes a goddamn legend (laughs) all right next guy up get out there get on the bull you know uh and same thing here that i think is implied which is you know yeah the the troop is is carrying on the show must go on the show will go on and uh it may be different but he fulfilled the, his destiny as this uh, this embodiment of this thing. His you know? reign, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 troop in their you know their regalia and their costumes for the event at the like you know in the pouring rain at the contemporary cemetery reminded me of um, like have you ever seen the like the cyber goth funeral <laughs> where, <laughs> like, yes. where they do like their rave dance for their fallen cyber goth uh, dude and it's just like a bunch of sad parents like <laughs> crying yeah. and watching that or a juggalo I've seen like a juggalo funeral sure too. that's it's like sort a juggalo of thing. yeah. One of us should do that, you know, like put it in our will. Like, I want a Knight Rider's funeral. (laughs) (laughs) I I will. Fuck it. Yeah, let's go. You know. So long lie sleeping, waiting to be born. I can hear the weeping. Deep inside, I can feel her dance. Dude, in all, I mean, in all seriousness, like, I, I think this is like, this is the very epitome to me of like an, like an underappreciated, like masterpiece because like, again, this idea of him, because something he struggled with throughout his career that he talked about is how many times he had people coming to him and be like, do another zombie movie do another dead movie. Come on, do another dead picture. And just wanted him to keep hitting these same notes and him resisting that and saying, fuck it. I, I, I will, I will turn your big paycheck away to play some, some same note over and over again to go make a movie that I want to make and make it my way. Yeah. Look there, you know, I know you guys aren't on like Twitter, like I am, but like, there's a lot of talk these days about selling out and how, uh, you know, young people these days, they, they have no conception of it or they don't even think of it or anything or whatever, you know? And, that that was just like the one thing that just like really struck me the whole time is like yeah this whole movie really is about this filmmaker just being like fuck you like 
I'm just gonna yeah. fucking I'm just gonna fucking do my thing. I'm not gonna sell out. That's what the whole film is about, right? And again, if that if that's an attitude that's been lost, you know, we need more of that these days, right? So people should watch Night Riders and go, hey, fuck you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, you know, these are these are the 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 male weepies that we brought for you today. But how about you? What about you? What's a what's a what's a movie that that cries macho for you? You know, so someone I think of a lot through this lens is John Cassavetes. I think, you know, one of the first ones that came to my head was like potentially husbands, but I still think the one that to me, and maybe I wouldn't classify it as a male weepy, but I would certainly classify it as cry macho, is his second to last film, Love Streams which to me is just this open wound of a film. It deals with, you know, I mean, everything that was on his mind in the final moments of his life. I mean, he he made the film when he, like, had a cancer diagnosis that he thought would take his life, like, very abruptly. Um, he ended up living a little bit longer, but, you know, he thought this was the end for him. So here he is, and he's engaging with things he's engaged with throughout his career, you know, ideas of masculinity, of love, of relationships, of, like, what it even just means to hold on to people uh, and, like, you know, how we all treat each other. It's got a little bit of everything in it, but it is one of the most emotional films I've ever seen, and it's a film that, like, haunts me to this day and I think about a lot. But, yeah, I would say John Cassavetes' film Love Streams. One of the greats. Mm -hmm. And since you brought it up, man, too, for that matter, like, goddamn, now that you mention it, like... Killing of a Chinese bookie is extremely cry macho. Oh yeah, you know? I mean it's basically mm-hmm. his Night Riders because it's all about this guy who's like holding together a troupe of performers. The nightclub is the the arena, you know. I mean they're yeah they're basically the same goddamn movie now that I think about it. I was gonna joke Ryan that uh, Night Riders is George Romero's Hu Shen's the Puppet Master. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's a great traveling troop movie for you. That's beautiful. That's nice. That's nice. But yeah, so that was that was my pick this week. Uh, Marsh, what, what do you have for us next week? I decided the topic for next week this morning when I walked out my door wearing my windbreaker for the first time this season. And in fact, uh, the day we're recording this, it is the first day of fall, officially. And so the topic for next week is autumn leaves. Ah, yes. Bring me fall films. Bring me autumn sonatas. Bring me something with that vibe. Sweater weather pictures. That's right. (laughs) Sweater weather pictures. (laughs) Beautiful. I love it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Nothing but a no good, washed out, beat up rock rider. All you know is how to bust a gut, and that's all you'll ever know. The more bones you break, the bigger man you think you are. That's right. Broken bones, broken bottles, broken everything.